Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from the Farnham U3A World History Group. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A World History Group, nor the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. In this talk, Lorna Thomas tells us about poverty through the centuries. She starts in medieval days with strip farming on the lands of the local manor, the Enclosure Acts and the industrialisation of Britain and ends with the legislation of the 19th and early 20th centuries. This is really going to be just an overview because as you can imagine with the subject of poverty, it is all-encompassing. So very much an overview. I'm going to go from medieval times and stop uh, stop short into the 20th century, at the point at which the Liberal government of 1906 basically laid the foundations of what today we would recognise as the welfare state. Many, Much of the legislation that was enacted by the Labour government uh, after the Second World War, the foundations had already been laid. There's always been poor people and there's always been poverty, but when did they become a problem? Views have changed over the centuries, so I'm going to take a look at the agrarian industrial revolution, changes in the way that goods were brought to market, really influenced people's attitudes towards the poor. And of course, one of the most marked things was the changes in enclosure, the enclosure acts of the 19th century. We're also going to take a look at the influencing thinkers of the 18th and 19th century, people like Malthus, Edwin Chadwick on public health, Herbert Spencer on social Darwinism, and in particular, the two gentlemen, Charles Booth and Seaboam Roundtree, who influenced attitudes to poverty greatly in their reports. And they really built up to the legislation that was enacted by that Liberal government. One thing I'm not going to do is to take a, a look in any great depth at the labouring population's organised resistance to their plight. And things like the Peterloo Massacre, Tolpuddle Martyrs, Chartism, the Swing Movement with Captain Swag, they're all very interesting, but unfortunately we'll be here until next week if I do. So that's hopefully a brief introduction. My definition loosely of poverty for the purpose of the talk is the complete lack of the means necessary to meet basic personal needs such as food, clothing and shelter. Taking a look back in medieval times or at least as far back as the Black Death, as I've said already there were very definitely poor people, in fact they made up nine-tenths of the population. And if you think back to probably something you saw in school days, which was the social pyramid, where you had the king at the top of the pyramid and underneath the monarch would be knights, barons, bishops, and so on. Below that, a, a sort of third layer of trading people, artisans, yeomen and freemen. But by far the biggest wedge of that social pyramid was the bottom layer, the bottom tier, which were the peasants. 
The Lord of the Manor would have owned the largest plot of land around any village and the people, the peasants of the village would work for him in a number of fields. Now, I'm sure that you'll all be scratching your heads, but you're able to think back to school days when you did the three field system. Three field system, medieval times, three large fields. Part of the common land was used as pasture land where the villagers could keep sheep and cattle and pigs and so on and graze. Some meadow land for cutting hay and probably there would be some woodland nearby where people would gather wood for fires. Of the three fields, only two were cultivated each year, whilst the third would lay fallow. Each strip would, in old money, be approximately 220 yards by about 22 yards. So each strip was held by a small holder, and they would work that strip. Part of the food they produced would go to the Lord of the Manor, but they themselves would keep part of it. They would probably have the benefit of approximately one day's work with a communal plough. Division of labour was good and bad. There were advantages and disadvantages. The huge disadvantages were that the farmers and smallholders lost a lot of time walking from one field to another. If you've got a strip in the north field and you've got to go then over to the south field, you've got a long hike. Farm buildings tend to be so central in the, in the village. Drainage was almost impossible. And you could suffer from your neighbour's poor farming and practices. And there were a lot of weeds. So if your neighbour didn't weed his patch, that would affect your production. But the open fields were hedgeless and unprotected, which meant that, of course, cattle and livestock could stray. The system meant that although not rich, each family could have just enough for subsistence. In a way, I suppose today we would think of it as an allotment. Every poor person, although poor, had enough for personal survival. So the idea of pauperism and poverty was fairly remote, although very close. It's, it seems a contradiction in terms. But when you have a very few people at the top of that social pyramid as rich, very few in the middle, and an awful lot at the bottom who were poor, but not necessarily abjectly poor. The Black Death in 1348, of course, had a dramatic effect. It's said that by some estimates that up to 50% of the population of Europe is believed to have died during that epidemic. And there were some villages in, in England that, for example, West Thickley in County Durham lost every single member of its population. There was a dramatic reduction in the amount of land that was under cultivation, and some historians believe that it marked the end of the, the feudal system. It was marked um, some years later by the Peasants' Revolt. Parliament passed a series of laws to prevent wages rising, which caused great hardship. And eventually the peasants under Watt Tyler revolted, and th that's really the first great rebellion, popular rebellion in Britain. But it was fairly quiet and not much changed. Still that situation of rich and poor, well into the 16th century. Henry VIII meddled and rather upturned the apple cart, so to speak, because people who often cared for the poor up to that point were the church. And he decided to dissolve all of the monasteries. So 
that means of relief and help for the poor was taken away in the 1530s. However, not too large a population people managed into the 17th century. You have the 1601, the Poor Law Relief Act was passed, which formed the basis of the poor law basically for the next 200 years. The act put the burden of relief on the parish, which led to the appointment of overseers of the poor who were responsible for the collection and distribution of poor rates. There followed also settlement acts in 1662, 91 and 97, which meant that the poor were the responsibility of the parish in which they were settled. The settlement laws helped to explain why long distance subsistence migration declined after the restoration. Most poor folk now only moved short distances away from their parish because the next parish wouldn't look after them. So they would have to go back to their parish of their birth if they fell on hard times. By the beginning of the 18th century, there was a distinct shift in how goods came to market. Previously, goods had been bought and sold at the local market. By the beginning of the 18th century, farming had gradually become geared to the demands of regional and national markets. Rural industries or cottage industries, such as nail making or framework knitting, grew at a most unprecedented rate. Now, framework knitting, for example, a merchant would go to a local market, buy the wool, take it around to a series of cottages for people to work the, the wool itself to a point where it became yarn. He would then collect the yarn and take it back to a larger market to sell on to make the finished product. So you have lots of people working in their own homes, a little bit like home working of today, but it was collected by a middleman and taken to markets. In 1873, there was an act which authorised the setting up of workhouses. And in 1782, the Gilberts Act allowed parishes to unite in unions. So although people were working in their homes, they tended to create more wealth uh, on a small scale. And parishes were able to cope with their pauper problem because the numbers were relatively small. So, so far, so good. The system worked. However, by the beginning of the 18th century, there were several factors coming into play that were bubbling under the surface and making it soon to be an impossible burden to deal with the poor on such archaic earlier systems. Three factors that came together, that merged together during the 18th century, political, social and economic factors. The political factors were that land became a necessary qualification for election to Parliament and it gave people the right to vote. Therefore, political power rested with the landed classes and Parliament was, of course, in those days controlled by landowners. The owner of the land could make a profit by either selling the produce from the land or by leasing the land at very high rates to tenant farmers. And of course, the poor peasants had no political say. Now, the social element is that the growing wealth of middle-class traders encouraged them to buy land so that they could move into the upper echelons of the landed gentry. Middle-class farmers 
were, however, much more entrepreneur-minded rather than dependent on local markets. The improved transport system meant that they could reach national markets. And therefore, farming itself became more a business rather than a means of subsistence. So there's been this shift from just grow your own to making farming much more of a business. And lastly, the economic element is the growth of population. It simply meant there were more people to feed. The growth of trade and industry also meant that there were more people who no longer played any part in the production of their food. The peasants had gone from their self-sufficiency in growing just enough for themselves to a barter system whereby they might uh, take some of their wheat to the local miller. He didn't grow anything, but he would take a a percentage of of the uh, milled flour uh, from barter to money. And that is a significant change in how it affected those at the bottom end of that pyramid. Now, there were two potential options for the food production problem. More land could be brought under cultivation or larger crop gained from each acre. The former, once the fertility had been improved, was naturally fenced off so that it was no longer an open field system. And that was actually quite crucial because it meant that much social injustice and and it highlighted the plight of those who had no say in that farming situation in that their strips were then taken away from them, as we will see later, by enclosure. The latter problem of gaining more crops from the acre was solved by people like Charles Turnip Townsend that you can see there in the slide because they came along and those agricultural revolution inventors, if you like, helped to get more production from the land by benefit of their inventions. So Turnip Townsend, as he, the second Viscount Townsend was known, improved the productivity of land. Also, there were land conversion projects, land drainage and reclamation. People learned a great deal from the Dutch in reclaiming land from Flanders and the Netherlands, and they brought it over to to this country and were able to drain the fens and make the fenland much more um, manageable for farming. People such as Jethro Tull, selective breeding, Robert Bakewell and Arthur Young, producing larger, bigger, fatter cows and pigs. There was also an increase in farm size as people adopted things like the Norfolk four course rotation, whereby fodder crops were grown, uh, such as turnips and clover, and that replaced the whole idea of leaving land to be fallow. But these improvements brought about unforeseen problems of their own for the poor, because as they produced more food, there were more consumers. Perhaps this is a sight more familiar in history to us. With the rural poor, the increase in food supply contributed to the rapid growth in population in England and Wales. The population went from five and a half million in 1700 to nine million by 1801. Domestic production gave way to food imports in the 19th century as, again, trade 
improved uh, as we spread our wings as a colonial empire. And that caused even more population growth or contributed to population growth. So that by the end of the 19th century, the population was estimated to be somewhere around 35 to 37 million people. The rise in productivity accelerated the decline that the agricultural labourer had in his share of the land. And it also added to the urban workforce on which the Industrial Revolution depended. It should be remembered, however, that the agricultural revolution was a process that was fairly piecemeal. It, it wasn't uniform throughout the country. Its speed varied from county to county and even from village to village, but it was slow and ponderous. Now, I mentioned just a moment ago that enclosure was hugely significant because once those strips of land were enclosed by fencing, people claimed their proverbial territorial rights, if you like. And enclosure had far-reaching social effects. It reduced many to a state of very real poverty and in very large numbers, so large in fact, to bring poverty to the forefront of politics. By the 19th century, fields were more the familiar fencing and hedgerows that we know today than they had been in medieval times. Quite simply, as a result of enclosure, those with wealth enough to pay sought to enclose their new possessions, and by enclosing the land, they automatically excluded the poor. Why were they able to do that? Well, quite simply, the landowner had to apply to Parliament for a sanction to enclose the land, an enclosure act. Such was the pace of change with these applications that between 1700 and 1760, there were just over 200 enclosure acts. However, between 1760 and 1840, there were over 3,500 enclosure acts. This required only one signature. The Bill of Enclosure was read twice in the House of Commons and then turned over to a committee. The committee reported favourably and the bill became law. The sting in the tail for the poor smallholder was that the committee often consisted of at least one or more members who had sponsored the bill in the first place. And so they obviously, it's hardly surprising that the interested parties on the committee generally reported favourably. So once again, the poor smallholder was pushed out because he couldn't buy the land that he worked. After 1774, the nominal posting of intent to apply for enclosure really only played lip service. The outcome was a foregone conclusion. In fact, all those who had been provided by communal life of the open system in the village, they were no longer wanted. Many of the communal jobs, such as a, a common shepherd or the pinder who had charge of the local pond and many other jobs, just became redundant in the day when there were no redundancy payments, of course. Many of the strips of land had been bought by yeomen. These yeomen farmers swelled the ranks of the middle classes and they automatically applied for enclosure acts to fence off their property. The more productive enclosed farms meant that fewer farmers were needed to work the same amount of land, leaving many villagers without lands or even grazing rights. 
Many of them moved to the cities in search for work because, of course, parallel to this, you have the Industrial Revolution, which we'll come on to, and others left for the English colonies, but that's a whole subject in its own right. And successive General Enclosure Acts of 1801, 1836 and 1845 basically sealed the fate of the freehold and leasehold farmers and cottagers. Thereby, they created a larger number of landowners, middle classes, at the expense of smallholders, the poor. And it's by the beginning of the 19th century, aided by the inflation caused by the Napoleonic Wars, that poverty came to be thought of as a problem. Because who was going to take responsibility for the poor? And most significantly, who was going to pay for them? Rebellion was in the offing. And as I've said, I'm not going to go into all the details of the labouring classes' rebellions, but by the end of the 18th century, the magistrates at Spenum felt that their local workers were suffering destitution caused by a combination of enclosure and agrarian industrial change. And they believed that the problem had become so serious that the parish workhouse could no longer cope. And this had occurred simultaneous to events in Europe, which particularly the French Revolution between 1789 and 99, where the middle classes and the landed classes were beginning to get very jittery because they feared that mass pauperism was perceived a threat to national security. The magistrates in Berkshire on the 6th of May 1795 met at the Belligan Inn in Spenham Land near Newbury to discuss the, quote, the inefficiency of the labourers' wages for the necessary support of an industrious man and his family. It's also known as the Berkshire Bread Act. In simple terms, poor relief was based on the price of bread and the number of children a man had. It was first proposed that to fix the minimum wage, but unfortunately the magistrates decided not to fix the wages, but to make them up from the rates to be at an agreed minimum, which should be the price of a three gallon loaf per week for a man and one and a half loaves for his wife and each child. At the time, a gallon loaf was eight pounds, five ounces and cost a shilling. So this was really a top up for very low wages. However, it was not just their bread allowance, it was for their total income for food, clothing, fuel, rent, and everything else. The plan was adopted quite widely over the country. Uh, it was never adopted as a law, but it became commonly accepted. It basically didn't work and caused great hardship because in a way, the poor were sold short. And you have there a caricature contemporary of the time, a British labourer whose price is £22, whereas the price of a pig is actually £33. So the, the, the poor were basically saying, look, you know, animals are worth more than we are as, as people. And your farm animals are getting far better treatment than we are as people. Eventually, in 1834, the Poor Law Amendment Act was introduced, which required unions to appoint boards of guardians for the relief of poor in their area. At the time, it was regarded as a final solution to the problem of pauperism, which would work wonders for the moral character of each working man. Needless to say, it didn't. 
And of all the causes of poverty in the 19th century, the most prominent was poverty resulting from the receipt of inadequate and irregular earnings. The highest rates of pauperism were amongst occupations where casual labour was predominant. And of course, that meant the labouring poor on the farmlands because most labourers were employed seasonally. The Napoleonic Wars in 1815 had given rise to greater employment and that in a way had served to mask some of the worst features of the system. However, after the wars, unemployment again soared and the numbers seeking poor relief grew and grew. And it's at this point, of course, that the poor attempted to organise and sought to make their point by people like the Swing and Captain Swag. Captain Swag was a euphemous name for anyone who would come along and burn hayricks, etc. No names, uh, but they would just set light to them. And the Chartist movement for the People's Charter. Simultaneous to the changes in agriculture, you have the development of markets. In medieval times, as I'd already indicated, agricultural production was for the individual. But by 1500, regional markets were widespread. There were about 800 locations in Britain. The 17th and 18th centuries saw the development, though, of national markets, free of tariffs, tolls and customs barriers. By the 19th century, marketing was nationwide and the vast majority of agricultural production was for market rather than from the farmer and his family. The next stage of development was trading between markets requiring merchants, credit and forward sales, knowledge of markets and pricing and of supply and demand in different markets. Eventually, markets evolved into a national one being driven initially by London and then growing to other cities. For example, by 1700, there was a national market for wheat. At this affected prices, people were able to work prices for their own benefit and usually for the non-benefit, shall we say, of the labouring poor. Again, simultaneous to the development of markets and something that allowed them to happen were the inventions of things like road surfacing. Medieval times you had rough tracks that were pitted by ruts, wagons would break down, very difficult to get goods to market in the first place. However, inventions such as macadam, and in the illustration here you have the Henley Turnpike, which had a macadamized surface, which although still dusty, it's free from huge ruts, which meant goods could be taken at least by wagon more effectively to markets. And of course, we're also talking about the absolute flourishing period of canal development at the end of the 18th century. Canals flourished and enabled, of course, much heavier loads to be transported quicker and by a more direct route. And finally, the coming of the railways, which enabled the rapid and relatively cheap method of getting goods to market, also allowed for the transportation of perishable goods. Again, previously, medieval times, if you had milk or vegetables or whatever, you couldn't transport them very far because they would go bad. The railways enabled strawberries to be grown in the West Country to be in London in the same day, much more the familiar consumerism that we, we have today, and all due to the development of the railways. All of those things combined to effect the development of a substantial middle class of merchants, 
or middlemen and increase the numbers of yeoman farmers. They could employ workers for return for, for wages, but as we have seen, they only paid very grudgingly. Agricultural laborers were notoriously badly paid and in certain parts of the country worse than others. Their work was more or less 100% seasonal. Whereas in the past, the poor had looked in times of difficulty to their landowners, who for the most part had accepted responsibility, now with many more middle-class landowners who became eligible to contribute towards the poor and poor relief. They were, however, much more reluctant to do so, reluctant to accept the cost. The situation became untenable as market prices fluctuated, forcing price reductions for goods to market. The yeoman farmers passed the detrimental effect onto the labouring poor. They obviously couldn't really organise or answer back. And the labouring poor were no longer self-sufficient and frequently found themselves with wages cut. By the beginning of the 19th century, the recovery of food imports after the Napoleonic Wars, as I said earlier, had helped to mask some of the deficits. But the resumption of trade with America following the end of the War of 1812 led to the enactment of the Corn Laws in 1815, and those were for protective tariffs. It protected cereal grain producers in Britain against foreign competition. As markets fluctuated, many sank below the poverty line, thus creating a subculture or a subclass of paupers, i.e. those who could no longer meet those basic needs. Paupers fell upon the parish for help. And as numbers increased, the poor law became increasingly strained to provide help. Increasingly, those in need of help were blamed for their own situation. They were often seen as socially or morally inferior. They were criticised for seeming to have brought the situation on themselves through laziness and wanton behaviour. And many thought by the 19th century that the poor should be punished for their ineptitude. As we think of towns during the Industrial Revolution, and I've said it was running simultaneous to the agrarian revolution, overlapping but not exactly parallel. Many of those cottage industries I referred to earlier moved to purpose-built factories. You have people like Richard Arkwright developing his factories on the banks of the Derwent. Mechanised production increased the need for an unskilled labour force. Thousands of former agricultural labourers flocked to the rapidly developing industrial towns. Inventions such as steam-powered spinning and weaving machines enabled larger machines to do the work previously done by individuals in their own home. Iron and steel production manufacture grew enormously. The mechanically powered machinery required vast amounts of coal to fire the steam engines that powered the machinery. And as a result, coal mining increased on a previously unimaginable scale. The factories enabled much larger amounts of raw materials to be refined and made into finished products, thereby expanding the markets to sell these products beyond regional level to national and now international level. Huge numbers of workers were attracted to the prospects of greater amounts of work in the industrial towns. Sadly, their hopes were very often not materialised. 
typical industrial towns by the mid-19th century. You have very close, condensed buildings, very, very small backyards, all very close together, back-to-back housing. At the beginning of the 19th century, the number of provincial towns that had more than 100,000 inhabitants were almost non-existent. London was a colossus, or considered to be a colossus, with a population of 865,000. Even when Queen Victoria came to the throne in 1837, only five places in England and Wales had populations of more than 100,000. However, by 1891, 23 towns had reached that level of population. Their spectacular growth was partly due to natural increase, but it was fueled also by immigration from the countryside, particularly after the railways had ushered in an era of cheap mass travel. And by the mid-1800s, England's major railway lines had nearly all been completed or were under construction. So in a very relatively short period of time, there was huge change. Conditions in these factories, as we well know, were dreadful. Adults were required to work 14-hour shifts in the most appalling conditions, six days a week. Children were regularly employed as their labour was cheaper and they could crawl under machinery and make adjustments and repairs inaccessible to adults whilst not requiring machinery to be halted. Modern health and safety would have had a field day. Wages were poor and subject to market fluctuations just as in the land and the miserliness of employers is well documented. Labourers found themselves no better off than they were in the fields. Working conditions were terrible, and but so too were the living conditions. Several families would be crowded into shared dwellings with little or no sanitation. Whole streets or courtyards with the provision of only one toilet shared by dozens and dozens of people. Often the only water supply was contaminated. It was hardly surprising that death and disease was endemic. Most members of the working class were likely to experience poverty at some time in their lives. The 19th century inherited the attitude that poverty was a necessary element of society. Only by feeling its pinch could the labouring poor be inspired to work, was very much the attitude of the day. Thus, it was not the poor, not even poverty, but pauperism and destitution that was regarded as a social problem. Destitution was regarded as an individual's weakness of character and applied to those who laboured in both towns and countryside. So the poor only received very short shrift and little help. And you have a picture there of some of the slums where you have very large families all condensed into very cramped space. On the other hand, the middle classes were flourishing. The Great Exhibition at Crystal Palace in 1851, under the influence of Prince Albert, it attracted millions of visitors who marvelled at its exhibits. It showcased everything that was perceived great about Great Britain. Just 25 years later, on the 21st of June 1887, marked the 50th anniversary of Queen Victoria's reign. Nationwide, Englishmen celebrated with feasts and public ceremonies. The middle classes had particular cause to rejoice. The past 50 years had witnessed their triumphant rise to power. 
They were the masters of large-scale industry, international trade and banking. They were the chief beneficiaries of the recent British expansion into Africa, the Middle East and Asia. It was they who set the moral, political and cultural tone for English life. The doctrine of laissez-faire, the ideal of unfettered individualism, the belief in the pursuit of self-interest as a guarantor of justice, harmony and happiness, these were all accepted British truths by the 1880s, accepted, of course, by the middle classes. Attitudes towards poverty hardened. Many treated poverty as something that should be punished, as they felt it was the result of indolence, laziness and incompetence. The workhouses, which came under increasing pressure, instead of being a place of refuge, were really the last place you would want to find yourself. They were designed to punish the poor. Very cramped. The beds for the people looked almost like coffins. They were insanitary and generally horrible places. Truly a place of last resort. You had to be really with your back to the wall to have to take the step of entering the workhouse. They were places of degradation and despair. Families were separated, men and women were in separate accommodation, and only very young children were allowed to stay with their mother. The inmates, and I use the word accurately because that's how they were viewed, more as we would view inmates of prisons, were expected to work. But the tasks were menial and or backbreaking, breaking rocks or making rope from hemp, which would really wear fingers away to, to blisters. The conditions were less than basic and often insanitary. Many spent their last days in degradating conditions before they died to be buried in a pauper's grave. I said at the beginning that there were other influences uh, that were influencing thinking of the time. One of them was Thomas Malthus. He had a very influential theory of population. Thomas Malthus wrote an essay called The Principle of Population in 1798, which he modified some of the conclusions for a new edition in 1803. The rapidly increasing population of England, encouraged by misguided poor law, distressed him very deeply. He feared that England was heading for disaster, and he considered it, it was his solemn duty to warn his fellow countrymen of impending disaster. He deplored, as he put it, the strange contrast between overcare in breeding animals and carelessness in breeding men. So a little bit back to that caricature of the man and the pig. A lot of money and effort went into breeding animals, but no effort at all into keeping human beings alive. His theory was very simple. In his own words, he said that by nature, human food increases in a slow arithmetical ratio. Man himself increases in a quick geometrical ratio, unless want or vice stop him. The increase in numbers is necessarily limited by the means of subsistence. Population invariably increases when the means of subsistence increases, unless it's prevented from doing so by powerful checks. Malthus based his reasoning on the biological fact that organisms will reproduce arithmetically. Production of food, on the other hand, is subject to the law of diminishing returns. On the basis of these two premises, Malthus concluded the population tended to outstrip food supply. 
However, Malthus's pessimistic conclusions have not been borne out by the history of Western European countries. But of course, people weren't to know that at the time, and they very much were afraid that the population increases that he predicted would mean there just wouldn't be enough food to go round. At the same time, there were issues of public health. In the early 19th century, the growing towns characterised by overcrowding, poor housing, bad water and disease. Because for centuries, people had literally thrown their waste into the local rivers and or the streets. The stench, even in the 17th century, was foul. But with hugely increased numbers by the 19th century, the situation became impossible. Diseases such as cholera and typhus killed thousands. Major epidemics ravaged the country frequently. And there you have a caricature of the pollution in the Thames. By the middle of the 19th century, no fish swam in the Thames. And a ferry disaster in 1848, where more people died of typhus from falling into the stagnant water than were drowned, was one of the several wake-up calls that began to alert authorities that something on a government scale needed to be done to restore public health. Cholera was one of the greatest fears in Britain's overcrowded cities. It was not for nothing that it was known as King Cholera. There were frequent outbreaks. However, slowly people began to realise that the unsanitary conditions in towns and cities were contributing to the spread of the disease, although at that stage they didn't have the medical know-how to understand exactly why and how it was spread. In 1832, a large cholera epidemic struck again and the Prime Minister, Earl Grey, established a Royal Commission of Inquiry into the Poor Law. Edwin Chadwick was appointed as Assistant Commissioner with responsibility to collect data and information. The final report was published in 1834. It was highly critical, not surprisingly, of the old poor law system and recommended major changes. However, the new Poor Law Amendment Act did not go as far as Chadwick would have liked, but it did set up a central Poor Law Commission. One of the major criticisms of the report was that the Poor Law had been left to be organised at local level with no central authority over the system. Poor relief was still a cost issue and no one wanted it to accept responsibility. Much of the report was ignored. In 1837 and 38, typhoid struck. Chadwick was appointed by the government to start an inquiry into the situation of the UK's major cities. He published his landmark report, The Sanitary Conditions of the Labouring Poor, in 1842. As before, this report stated that there was an urgent need to improve the living conditions of the poor, plus the lack of public health was directly related to the lifestyles endured by the poor. It recommended the provision of clean, fresh water supply, toilets in homes, and a sewage system that could carry sewage away from the cities where it could be subsequently treated. Chadwick also noted that the labouring class could not labour as well as it could in an expanding industrial economy because of their poverty and poor health. Therefore, he argued that the improved health of the poor would directly benefit the nation as a whole. Chadwick argued that disease was the main reason for poverty and that preventing disease would reduce demands placed upon the poor rate. When his findings in the report were read out in the House of Commons, it said that MPs listened in, quote, astonishment, dismay, horror 
and even incredulity. But again, a cost was the main issue. Who was going to pay for the proposed reforms? Landlords were opposed. Many sought to influence MPs in the House of Commons. Many of the landlords themselves sat in the House of Lords. Chadwick's report meant that councils would have to increase rates. Again, something that was opposed by MPs. The Conservative government effectively rejected Chadwin's report and they were even nicknamed the Dirty Party. A further epidemic of cholera in 1848, which killed over 50,000, finally led to a change of mind. A more sympathetic Liberal government under the leadership of Lord Russell passed in 1848 the Public Health Act, which set up a Board of Health, the first time that the government had legislated on health issues. While the Public Health Act of 1848 was a great improvement, it was not made compulsory. The board could not force council to act upon its recommendations. In 1854, cholera struck again. However, this time, Dr. John Snow proved the link between contaminated water supply and cholera through his work on the Broad Street water pump. He argued that if people had clean water, then disease would be reduced. Cost, however, was still a sore point. London was affected by the Great Stink. Soon after, work began on the London sewage system. By the time it was completed, 13,000 miles of pipes had been laid under the direction of Joseph Bazalgette, the chief engineer. However, relatively few councils followed London's example. By 1872, only 50 councils had medical officers of health. The huge cost of carrying out improvements, once again, was the biggest obstacle. Pressure began to mount on government, but it still took almost two decades before government made legislation on public health compulsory. The next influence was social Darwinism. Social Darwinism was the application of Darwin's theory of natural selection to the evolution of human society. It seemed to add weight to the argument that poverty and the poor were an inevitable part of life and therefore did not require help or intervention. Herbert Spencer himself used the phrase survival of the fittest as early as 1852 in writing on biological evolution. The social Darwinists followed Spencer in seeing the role of society and government was to preserve laissez-faire. They misinterpreted Darwin's theory of natural selection and Spencer and the social Darwinists attempted to apply biological theories to social problems. They concluded that population pressure was beneficial because only the most intelligent and adaptable for each generation could survive. By the 1870s, there were signs, however, that the great machine of progress was beginning to run down. The middle classes were less confident of their future than they had been in 50 years before. In 1870, Britain suffered the worst depression in her history, and coincidentally at a time when both America and Germany were challenging her industrial supremacy and the command of world markets. The depression in agriculture produced mass unemployment and forced thousands of agricultural laborers to flee the countryside to the cities in search of work. 
yet the cities were unable to support their own burgeoning populations. And to make matters worse, waves of Eastern European migrants began to stream into the industrial towns, occupying slum neighbourhoods adjacent to those inhabited by the native born. However, towards the end of the 19th century, there were several organisations that were offering some kind of help, albeit, for the most part, on a self-help basis. There were a number of charities. The idea of self-help was the attitude of Samuel Smiles. Smiles was a Scottish-born author and government reformer, and although he campaigned on the Chartist platform, he concluded that more progress would come from new attitudes than from new laws. His masterpiece, Report of Self-Help, promoted thrift and claimed that poverty was caused largely by irresponsible habits. Whilst also attacking materialism and laissez-faire government, it had nonetheless been called the Bible of mid-Victorian liberalism and raised smiles to almost celebrity status. He basically was saying what they wanted to hear. Ragged schools were another self-help attempt. Many believed that the poor should be educated so that they could better their own lives and improve themselves. And uh, there were several ragged schools and church schools set up. This also was the period of Dr. Thomas Bernardo, who was a mid-Victorian philanthropist who went on to establish the Bernardo's homes. Bernardo himself established the Hope Place Ragged School in East London in 1868, and it was his first attempt at aiding the estimated 30,000 destitute children in Victorian London. Another contemporary was Octavia Hill. She was a social reformer, and much of her being a moving force behind development of social housing, her friendship with John Ruskin uh, enabled her to put her theories into practice because Ruskin invested in what she was doing. But she too believed in self-reliance, and she was opposed to municipal provision of housing, believing it was too bureaucratic and impersonal. Thomas Agnew, on a trip to New York in 1881, the Liverpool businessman visited the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. He was so impressed by the charity that he returned to England and determined to provide similar help for children in Liverpool. In 1883, he set up the Liverpool Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Other towns and cities began to follow Liverpool's example, leading in, on the 11th of July 1884 to the founding of the London Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children by Lord Shaftesbury. And of course, it was later that that society became the NSPCC, which was granted its royal charter by Queen Victoria on the 28th of May 1895. The problem for the charities was that they weren't coordinated. There was no national charities. However, attitudes to poverty were influenced hugely by two gentlemen, first of whom was Charles Booth. He was born in Liverpool in March 1840 into a family of merchants and ship owners. His father was an important Unitarian corn merchant and rich ship owner. Booth himself settled in London and turned his attention to the conditions of the working classes. He was struck by the abundance of the theoretical proposals for the relief of poverty, but also by the absence of accurate quantitative evidence. In his view, the first need was to obtain facts, both, as he said, to prevent the adoption of false remedies, 
and to provide materials to find remedies for the evils that do exist. In 1884, Booth assisted in the allocation of the Lord Mayor of London's Relief Fund by analysing census returns. Following this, a team of investigators, including Booth's cousin Beatrice Webb, took a more detailed look at the levels of poverty and types of occupation and effects of poverty on housing, education and social behaviours, including those of drugs and alcohol. Booth produced a huge report which ran to 17 volumes, uh, which appeared in 1902 to 1903, called The Life and Labour of the London People. He organised his work into three sections, poverty, arranged geographically, industry, categorised into 16 trades, and religious influences. But most importantly, he captured the streets according to their general condition of the inhabitants, which was quite a landmark thing to do. His coloured map really became the very thing that was used by subsequent investigators and reporters. Black areas, which you can just about make out, I think, on that slide, represented areas of the lower classes and semi-criminals. Dark blue was very poor, casual, chronic want, and so on, right the way through to yellow, which was upper middle classes and the wealthy. Booth's most important discovery was that 30% of the million families in London lived at or below the bare minimum level for independent subsistence. He demonstrated the futility of private charity and the need for a programme of welfare legislation. Although Booth avoided specific recommendations, he concluded that the state must intervene to preserve capitalist com competition by the removal of its very poor class out of the daily struggle for existence. Second and equally important gentleman was Seabone Roundtree. Benjamin Seabone Roundtree was the son of a Quaker chocolate manufacturer, Joseph Roundtree, of the chocolate we know to still know today. Initially working in the family business, but he made his name as a leading sociological researcher and welfare reformer. He's known particularly for his three studies in York, conducted in 1899, 1935 and 51. The first York study involved a comprehensive survey into the living conditions of the poor in York. During the investigations, investigators visited every working class household and his methodology inspired many subsequent researches in British empirical sociology. His results were published in 1901 as a book entitled Poverty, a Study of Town Life. Roundtree drew a poverty line in terms of a minimum weekly sum of money necessary for families to secure the necessities of a healthy life. The critical thing for Roundtree was whether income was sufficient to ensure minimum calorific intake and nutritional balance necessary to avoid illness and weight loss. He placed those below the, his poverty line into two groups, depending on their reason for their poverty. Those in primary poverty did not have enough income to meet expenditure necessary for their basic needs. Those classed in secondary poverty had high enough income to meet basic needs, but this money was being spent elsewhere, so they were unable to afford the necessities of life. He wished to measure a type of poverty that could not be reduced simply by greater, quote, thrift. 
In analysing the results of the investigation, he found that people at certain stages of their life, for example, in old age or in early childhood, were more likely to be subject to abject poverty, living below the poverty line, rather than at other stages in their life. From this, he formulated the idea of the poverty cycle, in which some people moved in and out of absolute poverty during their lives. It's also worth pointing out that as the 19th century progressed, slowly the language of poverty changes from people being called paupers or the poor up to about the 19th century. As the story develops, pauperism gives way to sickness and unemployment. A person is sick, unemployed or homeless rather than a pauper. In essence, the term is used to describe the reasons for destitution, as well as recording the person's condition. And it's a subtle sea change again in attitudes. One significant event on world politics stage was to have significant influence on attitudes to poverty. It was the Boer War. By the end of the century, attitudes were gradually starting to change. Policies of laissez-faire were not working as poverty and ill health remained widespread. Many feared that Britain was in decline as a world power. If Britain was to remain a world power, it needed a strong, healthy and well-educated workforce. New liberal ideas were emerging which suggested that the government should intervene to help the poor. Amongst those strong voices, incidentally, were Lloyd George and Winston Churchill. Simultaneous to the work of Booth and Roundtree came events on the political horizon which forced the government to take responsibility for doing something about poverty as a very real threat to national security. The Second Boer War began in 1899 in the south of Africa, which was being fought between two Boer republics and the British Empire. Britain only had a small, though well-trained, regular army. The Second Boer War lasted for three years, and the British Army needed to enlist more recruits. Many volunteered. However, the army experienced great difficulty in finding fit young men to be recruited as soldiers. Before men could join the army, they had to pass a medical inspection. It was discovered through these medical inspections that one third of volunteers were unfit for military service. It appeared that the physical condition of the working class male prevented him from fighting as well as working effectively in his job. There was a growing concern for national security as many people believed that the British Army had little strength in depth. If there was difficulty recruiting for a small scale war, then it would be even more difficult to enlist a large number of able-bodied soldiers for a large-scale war. This meant that Britain may easily be defeated by a strong, industrialised nation with a large army. Germany's shadow loomed. The Germans under Bismarck had made social reforms in the 1880s and by the beginning of the 20th century was economically and militarily strong. Germany was challenging Britain for international supremacy. The government report published in 1904 stated that free school meals and medical examinations should be introduced. This would help combat the poor physical conditions of many British citizens. The reports emphasised that diet should be improved, overcrowding reduced, as the worst cases were found in the industrial cities. Pressure was mounting on the government to act to ensure basic health levels were met 
in Britain. In 1906, the Liberal Party was swept to power on a landslide victory. And in the next eight years of liberal reforms, the foundations of the welfare state were laid with free school meals, old age pensions, labour exchanges and national insurance. Much of it paid for by taxes on the rich imposed by Lloyd George's People's Budget of 1909. Also, the Liberal Party feared that it might lose working class support to the recently formed Labour Party if it didn't look to help the poor. Thus, the Liberal government introduced the reforms to attempt to reduce poverty. I'm not going to go into all of the details of those because, again, it would take far too long. Only to point out that, for example, the old age pension that was introduced was only for those over 70. It was only for people who earned less than £31 per year. And you had to have been a citizen of Britain and lived in the UK for more than 20 years in order to benefit from it. And it was also below the poverty line established by Booth and Roundtree. So although it was a step in the right direction, it didn't necessarily resolve all of the problems, but it did lay the foundations, which were with subsequent reports to be enacted by subsequent governments. So in summary, children who would have been working in the 19th century and they would only be educated up to the age of 12 until the early 20th century when compulsory education was introduced for children up to the age of 14. Poverty appears to have become a social problem with the increase in population. Medieval, rich and poor, poverty was not thought of as a major issue. As population increased, the burden of cost of looking after those in poverty became an issue. Poverty was seen as self-inflicted and therefore required punishment to deter laziness. The agrarian revolution had brought about significant improvements in production from the land, thereby increasing capacity to supply an ever-increasing population. But enclosure had robbed those of the lowest levels of society of the means of self-sufficiency. It took their land and it took their independence. Enclosure created pauperism on a national scale, as those who could no longer look after themselves had to rely on handouts. The Industrial Revolution had unleashed the rapid expansion of towns and urban dwellings. Vast numbers left the land to work in rapidly expanding industrial and commercial towns. This increased the pressure on an already failing system. Responsibility for the cost of poor relief fell upon not only the traditional landed classes, but upon a greatly expanded middle class. They promoted laissez-faire trade and policies that rewarded their hard work and inventiveness, but gave little help to those immediately affected by fluctuating market forces, price rises and wage cuts. Factory owners and their middling farmers were often more interested in profit than people. By the end of the 19th century, the poor and those unable to earn even the most basic wage came to be regarded as life's casualties and their poverty brought on by their own laziness, drunkenness and ineptitude. The poor were disenfranchised and therefore unable to challenge the system. Universal suffrage was only granted to men in 1918 and to women by 1928. It took widespread threats to public health before government intervened, that only grudgingly because of the cost to ratepayers. Eventually, the threat posed to national security 
and the ability for the UK to defend itself finally prompted measures to be taken at national level. And with it, acceptance that poverty in the majority of cases was caused by low wages, unemployment, sickness and old age. And as I've said, the Liberal government of 1906 to 1914 introduced measures that laid the foundations that were to become the welfare state. But that was to take a further 35 years. So that was a quick trot through. I hope you've enjoyed. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening to this talk.